Joel said, we're excited to be finishing chapter two of First Peter as we're continuing our sermon series through First Peter. The living hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the hope we have in troubled times. A couple of weeks ago, we started chapter two, and in the first 10 verses, we were shown that not only is he our living hope as found in chapter one, but he is our foundation. He is our cornerstone. He's the, the bedrock that all of Christianity hinges on. Without the solid rock that is Jesus Christ, we have no sure salvation, and we have no ability to obey the commands of God, to be holy as God our Father is holy. And Jesus is building us into a spiritual house in order to offer up spiritual sacrifices. He says that in verse 5. In other words, we are to please him with our life. Remember, our works have nothing to do with our salvation, but they are rather a confirmation of the new nature that we have in Jesus Christ and that he gave us at the moment of salvation. And now he is calling us to live as servants of God. We'll pick up in verse 11 and we will go through the, the rest of the chapter this morning. Verses 11 and 12. Dearly beloved, I implore you as aliens and refugees, as strangers and pilgrims, to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Live your lives honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they speak against you as evildoers, they shall see your good works and thereby glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter begins this next section of the chapter by addressing these Christians as strangers and pilgrims, as refugees. He made reference to this in chapter 1 in his greeting to the church, that they were strangers, they were pilgrims, they were refugees. And he's continuing to instruct them on how to live holy in this world that we now live in as children of God. Peter is using terminology that compares Christians to the nation of Israel in this passage. God had created a covenant relationship with Abraham, which he has perfectly fulfilled. And God called Abraham out from among the people of that day and put his name upon them and his descendants forever. Abraham from that moment on was no longer a part of any other organized people group. He was faithful to God alone. And from then on, they were different from any other nation on the face of the earth. From Exodus through Deuteronomy, God gave them laws and made covenants with them to ensure that they were different, that they were separate, that they would live holy lives. And we as Christians, the moment we are saved, we are made into a new creation in Christ. We are set apart. We are no longer citizens of this world, but we are now citizens of a heavenly kingdom. God has given us instructions on holy living to keep us separate, just as in the Old Testament he gave Israel instructions in order to keep them separate from the peoples of that day. Peter continues by emphasizing the danger that God's children face as they live as temporary, temporary citizens in this fallen world. Peter begs them to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Peter doesn't try to hold back here. He's, he wants everyone to know that Every Christian is going to be tempted by our own human nature. Not only will we be tempted, but we will be at war with our fallen nature that has intentions that are other than good for us. As we live in this world that has its own rules and its own, and its own desires and its own morals, 
we will constantly find ourselves being presented with opportunities to give in to our old desires. Peter makes it clear that this is spiritual warfare. There are always going to be side effects that come along with the sinful behavior that we partake in. It will negatively affect our ability to be resistant to the sins in the future. It will possibly even cause us to quench the spirit, as 1 Thessalonians says. We must abstain or totally reject the sin that the world normalizes as we seek to follow God. We need to put on the whole armor of God, like Ephesians says in chapter 6, in order to stand against the temptations of the devil and of our flesh. Now, when a person becomes a child of God, there is, there is no way that anyone or anything can ever change that fact. Your destiny is forever secure. But the devil knows that his time is short and that he has much destruction that he wants to cause. He wants nothing more than to destroy as many lives and testimonies that he can with the time that he has left. Verse 12 tells us that another reason that we should live holy is to be an example to the lost. Live your lives honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they speak against you as evildoers, they shall see your good works and thereby glorify God in the day of visitation. So as we live honorably before God in our temporary home here on this earth, we will be seen by the world around us. Our lost family members, our coworkers, anyone that we spend meaningful time with, will they see a difference in how we live our lives? Will, will we be different because of Christ in us? Or are we gonna settle for living according to the desires of the temporary life that we have here on this earth? Today, culture has set its own moral law and that it, tries to hold everyone to. I'm sure all of us have seen at time or even experienced at times situations where the Bible is rejected, God is rejected, and we are even rejected for speaking the truth because of the moral law that the world has set up for itself. This is just as true at this time when Peter is writing, when at this at the time of this writing. In Matthew 5.11, Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount that there are those who will revile you and falsely accuse you, and that because of that, you are blessed. The God of this world, Satan himself, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. And because of their blindness, they will see us as the ones who are doing evil. When we live holy, they see us as the opposition. They are led to believe that we are against the good of mankind, when in fact, really by following God, we are attempting to help bring about a better path. When we reject the personal truths of today's culture, we're uh, we are labeled intolerant because of our belief in the truth of God. But we're promised that when the day of visitation comes, whether that is when those that are lost come to find salvation through Jesus Christ, or whether it's at the end of time when at the judgment seat of Christ, God judges all of those who are wicked. God promises that nothing will be returned void. All our good acts, all our holy living, although it may not seem like it's doing much good here on this earth, it will at some point in time bring all to give glory and honor to God. 
Now, this is not a reason for us to continue to live our lives as if we may be better than everybody else because we know something that they don't. No, what, what we should do instead is remember verses 9 and 10 when we were reminded that we, at one point in time we were not children of God. We were not believers. But because of God's grace, we are now his children. This is why we are to live different. Peter gives some examples in verses 13 through 17 of how we can live holy in the sight of all men. Verses 13 through 17 says, Submit yourselves to every human authority for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and to praise those who do right. For it is the will of God that by doing right you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free people, do not use your liberty as a covering for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Let's be honest, if we had our way, verse 13 wouldn't say every human authority. We all have those in our lives that we would rather not submit to. Whether they're bad leaders in general or whether they just kind of squash our little rebellious egos, we, we would rather be able to just ignore some of these leaderships. But that is not the plan of God. I think that if we are all completely honest, all of us who have ever worked a job or held a position somewhere have thought we could do the job of someone else that's over us better than they do it themselves. But the reality is this, we're always going to be under someone else's authority. As Christians, we are under the authority of God. Children are under the authority of their parents. Employees under their employer. For first-time parents like me, who are un we're under our nine-month-old who has decided for some reason now is not the time to sleep through the night. <laughs> so Peter specifically starts, though, with the governmental side of leadership. Because just like in our world today, this is how the main forms of law and order are kept. God has set up this model in his wisdom in order to keep some semblance of structure in an otherwise lawless world. At this time in history, the Roman Empire was the law of the land. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, it was anything but godly. So when he says in verses 13 and 14, whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and to praise those who do right, what he is saying is that even though this was one of the most godless entities in all of history, they were still the ones who kept the law and the order of the day, starting with the emperor and continuing down to the governors that the emperor put over the territories. Remember when Jesus was asked by someone who thought, thought they were smarter than God for some reason. If, well, are we really supposed to pay taxes? And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 13 that not only are we to submit to the governmental authority on the basis of being a witness to others, but we are living in direct defiance of God's authority if we do not. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. God is the one who gives authority, and he is also the one who takes it away. 
when people who seem very unfit for leadership or even rise to leadership from false ways, God's not surprised by this. It is no accident. God is still in control. He knows exactly what is going on, even when we seem that there seems to be no plan. Jeremiah says that God's ways are above our ways and our thoughts are beneath his, that he sees the bigger picture. When we see things that don't make sense to us, we should be encouraged that God is still in control. Paul continues in verses 3 through 7 of chapter 13 to kind of reinforce the fact that, yes, you are to obey the laws, but you're also to obey the laws that you may not like. Rulers are not a terror to good works, he says, but to evil works. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from him. For he is the servant of God for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and avenger to execute wrath upon him who practices evil. So it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For this reason you also pay taxes, for they are God's servants, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, respect to whom respect is due, fear to whom fear is due, and honor to whom honor is due. Not only is it a command of God, but it is once again shown to be a form of witnessing to unbelievers. Because in verse 15, he says, It is the will of God that by doing right, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. There will be those who falsely accuse you or me or Christians in general of things in order to benefit themselves. We're studying in teen group. We're going through some very interesting stories in the Old Testament, as I'm sure Chase could tell you. Second Corinthians, we're, we're going through some of the most gory, dis- <laughs> second Kings. Uh, that's right. We're, we're going through some of the most gory and disgusting stories in maybe the entire Bible where some things like it really just may not make sense why these things are happening. And one of the, and one of the Kings that we have just recently finished studying about is King Ahab and Jezebel. And if you've ever heard of Ahab and Jezebel, you know that they are the wicked of the most wicked. And in the kingdom of Israel, there was not even any good kings. So that means they were, they were pretty high on the spectrum of evil. And so there's a story about Ahab where he wakes up one morning and decides that he's, he wants his neighbor's vineyard. His, vine, his vineyard uh, has been in the family for years. And so Ahab goes to Naboth, the owner of this vineyard, and he asks if he can make a trade. And he asks if maybe there's a possibility that he could buy it from him. And at this point in time in history, people had land and usually it came from an inheritance. And it tracked back to when the people of Israel occupied the promised land in the first place. So Naboth, being a good family member, said, no, this is my inheritance of God. I'm going to keep it passing on to my family. So Ahab goes and throws his own pity party and decides that he's going to just pout his way to somehow getting this vineyard. And his wife, gets, Jezebel, gets tired of watching him sulk all day and sends a message out to the leaders of the town to bring Naboth to the head of the table at this next feast. Now, at this time, Ahab and Jezebel, they are 
far from God, uh, godly people. They're actually leading Israel and following the Baal worshiper, worshipers of the day. And so the fact that they are still um, following some of the traditions of the, of the Israelites really doesn't make sense because, I mean, they don't even believe in God. But yet Jezebel manipulates the situation to have Naboth in front of the whole congregation of Israel at the time and then pays two men to lie about him and say that he had been heard blaspheming God who they weren't even serving at the time, but apparently because they were following the rules of the old times, they decided, well, we're going to care about this for some reason. They killed Naboth, and Naboth's vineyard was given to Ahab. Now, this is an extreme example of a situation where someone was punished for doing good. But Jesus says, once again, that we are blessed if we are reviled. We're blessed if we're persecuted for his name, for doing righteousness. And Peter makes it clear that if we live above the law, that most of the time our testimony will, in fact, exonerate us from being punished by the government. Now, I'm sure just like many of you, I've, there's, there's been situations in my life where I have been in a situation where I've been questioned about something, and usually because of my character, hopefully in a good way, I've been able to handle the situation better, and I'm sure you guys have been through situations in the same way. What Peter is meaning by putting to silence the ignorance of foolish men is exactly that, that if we live honorably before men and before God, that they will see our good works and they will glorify God. He follows this up with a warning to not use our freedom in Christ or our status as a stranger in this world as an excuse for not obeying the rule of law. Unfortunately, there are some Christians who have used their faith as a reason to disobey some laws that the government has put in place that aren't against the moral law of God. But they have put them in place and we're, we don't really like them. And some Christians have gone and taken the verse where it says we ought to obey God rather than man out of context in order for them to kind of get by without going through this situation. Peter, as well as Paul in Romans 13, is clear that servant, as servants of God, we are not to behave in this manner as it contra contradicts what God has commanded. And verse 17 wraps up this thought with some very simple commands to the church. We are to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. These four simple statements embody the two greatest commands that God gave us, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we are to honor all people. We are to treat everyone who is made in the image of God with dignity and respect, whether they are a believer or whether they are not, because we are all created by God equally. And the only difference between us and those who have not yet received Christ is God's mercy. We are to love the brotherhood. Those who are in the family of God, we are to love and we are to care for and we are to serve, being an example to unbelievers. John 13, 35 says that all people will know that we are followers of Christ by how we love other Christians. Unfortunately, Peter in this time is probably dealing with a situation where this is not happening. And it's very applicable today as 
Many Christians chase away other people by our actions towards other Christians. There are those who may be on their way to Christ and they see the way some Christians are fighting amongst themselves. They are airing out their differences on social media. They see the way we treat each other and they decide that they are just fine the way they are. We need to love other Christians. We need to love the brotherhood. We also need to fear God. We are to obey the commands that God has given us to follow as his children. And we are to honor the king. We are to respect and obey the authorities that God has placed in our lives. So then Peter turns in the final section of this chapter, he turns his attention to the servant-master relationships that was commonplace in this time. Now, this is not slavery or servanthood as maybe we as Americans would understand it to be. But in the old Greek and Roman empires, these servants were usually people who were less fortunate or had come upon hard times and had put themselves under the service of a master, someone who could put them to work. Um, and they were indentured. Most of them were working hard to try to ensure their freedom after a certain amount of time. And some of them were forever indentured because they had decided to put themselves under that for, for the reasons of just providing for their families for the foreseeable future. And unfortunately in this time, there was not a lot of laws that were protecting those who were underneath these masters. These masters usually knew that there was a ticking time clock, that they had these people in their service, and they were very harsh, and they were very cruel to them, and they pushed them to the max in order to get the most amount of work out of them for the amount of time that they have them in their service. And Peter's encouraging those who were stuck in these circumstances to look to the example that Christ left for them. Verses 18 through 21, he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, a person endures grief, suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you are being beaten for your sins, you patiently endure? But if when doing good and suffering for it, you patiently endure, this is favorable before God. For to this you were called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Peter begins with this section of dealing with the servant-master relationships the same way that he did with those who were free in verse 13. They are to submit themselves to their authorities. They are to submit themselves to their masters. They are to be genuine in their respect and in their obedience to them. He states that this does not apply to just the good and to the gentle masters, but also to the harsh and the cruel masters. He says that this is commendable behavior to stand in the face of injustice and much suffering and that they will be following the example of Christ if they do so. He uses the analogy that when you are being punished for something that you deserve, that you're able to justify in your mind this suffering. You're able to put up with the consequences because you know that you deserve them. But when you're going through a situation that you honestly can't think of a reason why you're having to suffer. You're doing your best to honor God. You're doing your best to live blameless before people. 
and yet it seems like God is nowhere to be found. It seems unfair and it seems unjust, but it's been what we have been called to. We are following the example that Jesus laid before us. We are to follow in his steps. Peter then revisits the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus and relays the message to the church members who are suffering at the hands of their masters that this is indeed how they were able to be saved. This is how they were able to see the goodness of God, to receive his mercy. Verses 22 through 25. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but now have been returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Peter is encouraging them to behave in the manner that Jesus himself did. The stripes that he bore, the wounds that he received, they were the healing that we now have and that these people were able to partake in. Maybe today you're going through a situation and it doesn't seem fair. You're doing your best to live a holy life, honorable before God and man. And yet you feel like the world is against you, that God is nowhere to be found. Be encouraged. You are not alone. Jesus walked that path before you so that when you suffer, he has already walked that path. He has already felt it and he has made a way for you to endure it. You will not and you cannot carry it on your own, but you never have to. He is there and he is carrying you. And though it doesn't seem possible, you can respond the way that Jesus did to his abusers, patiently enduring the pain and not hoping for retribution, taking insults and threats, yet not responding in the same way. It's definitely not what we want to hear, but it's true. And I'm sure we've all faced some excruciating pain in our life. And for those of us who haven't, we sure will. But what we can also be assured of is that we have a living hope Because of the price that Jesus paid, this pain, however real and however extreme that it is, however unjust and unfair, it's but a light and momentary affliction, a mere blot on the page of your eternity if you are in Christ. As we live as servants of God, we are promised that trials will come. But if we are on the firm foundation that is Jesus, we can live a holy life, an honorable life, pointing others to Jesus and the love and the mercy and the grace that he alone can offer. And as we suffer in this life, let us not live as victims, but let us live as conquerors. This world is not our home. We are but strangers and pilgrims passing through. Jesus has already won, and we are no longer lost. Jesus is our shepherd, and he is the guardian of our soul. In Romans 8, verses 35 through 39, I'd like to close by reading this. Paul is talking to the believers in Rome, and he's dealing with the same exact situation of those going through hard times. And he wants them to be encouraged that nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. 
We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, nor powers, neither things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we go throughout this week, I'd like to remind us of a couple things. That as we live holy and honorably before God and before man, that we would, that we would rest in the fact that God, that Jesus has already done this for us and he has made a way that we are able to do this. And not only are we to be his servants, but that we are to be an example to the lost, to the unbelievers, that as we go through this life with its much suffering, with its tribulations, that we would rest in the fact that God is there and God loves us. He's been there and he's walking with us through this. Let's pray.